This is Bonjour Chai, the Pride and Prejudice edition. I'm Avi Feingold in Montreal, and I'm here with Phoebe Maltzbovi in Toronto. And as always, Zach Hoffman behind the boards. We are your frozen chosen. On today's show, we talk about Jewish day schools and Pride Month. Are we equipped as a community to deal with changing norms in societies and everything that goes along with it? And we get into Elizabeth Gilbert's uh, self-censorship. All this and more coming up. Phoebe, how's it going? It's going great. How are you doing, Avi? Doing all right. End of the school year for for the kids. Um, I'm going to be in Toronto uh, next week uh, for some other work based stuff. Uh, you know, we should have a uh, a super secret uh, get together happy hour for our uh, for our listeners. Yeah, we should do I that. Know, maybe if you are interested in getting together with the people of Bonjour High, send us an email at bonjour at the cjn.ca. Anytime between when you hear this and uh, I'd say Wednesday, and uh, we'll send you an address uh, with a super secret location for a super secret Bonjour High happy hour that was just decided on the spot. And I have to look into some super secret uh, Bonjour High childcare. Oh, we'll figure that, that out. <laughs> so we have a lot today. We have a lot today. Tell me what's going on with Elizabeth Gilbert. Elizabeth Gilbert is best known as the author of the 2006 memoir. Eat, Pray, Love. And I'm just going to say that I, for some reason, all this time was conflating this in my head with Live, Laugh, Love, which is that slogan that would be on like a throw pillow. So it's kind of the same vibe as that, but it's actually a really massively best-selling book that was turned into a 2010 movie starring none other, you know, a little-known actress you may not have heard of called Julia Roberts. I don't know who that is. I know. It's, it, this she is ever a Jewish... a Jewish character? <laughs> um, <laughs> Rokovich sounds Jewish, no. <laughs> I would have thought like Croatian or something. But in any case, um, Elizabeth Gilbert just came into the news again for having made a video in which she announces the, not quite the unpublication, but the indefinite postponement of her forthcoming novel, which I had not even known existed until she made this video, to be called The Snow Forest, which was supposed to come out February 2024. She announced that last week. This week, she announced it's not because over the weekend, per this video, she learned from her Ukrainian readers that she should not be, at this moment in time, writing a novel about Russia in any capacity. Now, the novel, from her description, from the descri descriptions of it, I obviously have not read it. Nobody's read it. It's, it never appeared. Um, is set in mid-20th century Russia and is about very particular topics that have nothing to do with Russia's aggressions in Ukraine today. Well, in mid-20th century, Russia was aggressive to everybody. So, yeah, so it's is entirely that, is, possible. The idea is not that, <laughs> yes, but my point is not that, that Russia at that time was blameless in all things, nor indeed that that's, it doesn't sound from the description of this novel that it's at all that way. It sounds, if anything, somewhat critical of Russia. But the point is, um, she decided that it was not the moment to have a novel coming out set in Russia because people were mad at her about this. And she decided that they're right. And like, so what happens is that there's this website, Goodreads, that's reader reviews, although nobody's mm -hmm. checking that anybody's actually read the book. And what can happen is once word gets out on social media that a particular novel that's uh, forthcoming is problematic in some way, sometimes there will be a campaign to get the novel gotten rid of sort of before it even happens. And I wrote about it for the Globe and Mail from not specifically a Jewish perspective, but we're going to be talking about 
the Jewish angle. Da, 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 da. Oh. So um, under which circumstances, for example, like when I'm thinking, what is the Jewish angle on this? There's the religious reason for objecting to a book, which, you know, you think of obviously Salman Rushdie comes up, you know, when you think about that sort of angle. But then there's this, this is not, this is more a, a political objection here. And also the question of like fiction versus nonfiction and where that enters into it. Because one thing that I noticed about this is like, to write fiction, it's something that takes a really long time. And it's not, it just like cannot be about the news cycle just like as a matter of practicality, you cannot write a novel that's in keeping with the news cycle because of how long it takes to write a novel. So that's um, one aspect of it. But then there's this question that I really want to hone in on about banning books. Is this banning? If an author decides to take her own book out of publication? Well, my sense is that she wants this book published and she is, you know, being told that this is not the right book to publish and you should not publish it. So my guess is is that this is just as good as a ban as anything else, simply because they are being told you cannot do this. So they are, it it is in effect a ban. Mm -hmm. And I'm against book bans. I'm against, Mm -hmm. you know, not only, you know, in the right wing, you know, sort of way, but if people on the left, right, are against all of these book bans that are happening in the U.S. in these libraries, and now there's, now there's, there's bans against book bans. I heard about this, that like, apparently, like, even Illinois right now has like a law in the books that bans the ability to to for libraries to ban certain books? Sure. I mean, so there are a bunch of things here. One is that I would say that this needs to be separated. This is going to be maybe a theme for today's episode. This is not actually splitting left-right. What what seems to Sure, I'm just is, using that as a frame. So, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. No, but what, what's interesting is normally these things do, right? So there's kind of a progressive sense that when an author does a, a problematic book that they're, you know, offending marginalized people in some way and that was insensitive and they should not write that book or or should change it in some way. Here, what's happened is a little different. There was this Goodreads campaign by just, it was something like 175, although it kept fluctuating, um, one-star reviews from people who had not read the book who were basically like, this is about Russia. We are, our campaign, our protest campaign is to give one-star reviews to this book and say that it's romanticizing Russia and, or Russians and be mad at it. It's not that people disagree with anything in the book because they don't know what's in the book. It's just somehow the the word has gotten out that this book is bad and should be and is like the site of a protest, basically. So it's a little so what I was going to say. So but what's happened is and I think my theory is that because the people who Elizabeth Gilbert offended here inadvertently, obviously, were Ukrainians. There's been a lot of defense from progressives of Elizabeth Gilbert in this case Everybody seems to find the whole thing a bit ridiculous, except for some Ukrainians on Goodreads. Yeah, what people essentially are saying is you might be seen as pro-Russian by writing this book, by publishing this book, and you don't want to be seen as pro-Russian in this day and age. And what's interesting is that she slash her publisher seem to have come to this conclusion, perhaps based not on a really accurate assessment of the readership, but a bunch of people get it, it. This happens all the time in all sorts of contexts where like, 10 people, 100 people, whatever, are really vocally mad online and powers that be make huge business decisions as if that's representative of some kind of broader sentiment when it's not. 
So that's what's confusing here also. This is one of the downsides of our connected culture, and we need to figure out a way around it. I think that anybody who's not willing to sign their name to a an idea must um, must be ignored in some way or another. I feel like one should... Well, some of them do put their names. It's more that they have not read the book because it's not out yet. That's that And too. I think that that's, yeah. that's a key For detail. all they know, this could be a pro-Ukrainian, anti-Russian, you know, book. Um, but she's being... It's like... I. Don't understand. This was a trend in journalism for a while that has thankfully, I think, started to wane, where a news article would be written on the basis of people are saying, and it would have like three tweets. It'd be like, yes, three people yeah. on the internet have said something. It tells you nothing. You know what I mean? It's entertaining. It certainly serves as entertainment, but it's not necessarily a meaningful assessment of what's happening. Um, I think it's interesting that she went this route, but most authors in this context would not have the option of saying, I'm going to forego my income of several years. Um, so that's, so, the, so what um, my friend, the novelist Lee Stein had written about this also is that like, this sets a really bad precedent for, ordinary novelists, as it were, you know, people who are making a living from writing or trying to, but who are now going to feel like anything that if anything that anybody could criticize, which is anything, um, could get your novel unpublished. So I don't think that's great. And I guess my more sort of philosophical issue with all of this is I don't like the way that fiction specifically is expected and arts generally are expected to kind of be this, like almost yeah, real-time op-ed rather than art, which and a, relates a long-term in, in a different, yes, exactly. yes, which it is not that it's separate from the world. It's not that it's some pure aesthetic only thing, but the idea that like, like when I pass my local bookstore and I see that every time there's an awareness month, they put stuff in the window. That's fine. They're a bookstore. They're trying to sell books. They're trying to tie it in with something in the world, right? That's normal. But I don't think authors themselves should be feeling like what their work is, is to produce things to fit for specific awareness months, news cycles, and so forth. Chiming in from behind the the screen, Certainly. Um, can I ask, Phoebe, as someone who's written a book, don't authors all the time try to release their books at moments where they're going to do best in the marketplace? Like, I imagine that people release presidential biographies right before an election, or will release a book on love on va near Valentine's Day. Um, sure. You know, you want to release yes. your book at a moment where it's going to be the best best taken up. So sure. how does that play into that this? I can speak to that for sure. Yeah. Yes, um, I can speak to that on a personal level, which is that I wrote a book about the concept of privilege too early and I'm kicking myself uh, financially for that for the rest of my life. I should have well, written You could later. write a sequel. But the thing is, it didn't sell well enough the first time, right? Yeah. And also, I mean, my own interests have evolved. I'm not so interested in that anymore as I was in 2015 or whatever when I was writing it. But the point is, this is something that has to do with book marketing and not book writing. So what's different is for an author of fiction specifically, I think, to feel that their work itself has to be in keeping with the news cycle and with what people want or don't want at a particular time. And once the decision has been made to publish a book, the idea that, oh, well, this isn't the perfect timing, let's never mind about that whole big novel that somebody just wrote, that seems a bit troubling to me. You know what I mean? Like, I, if, if we go back in time and say that Elizabeth Gilbert 
has this notion of a novel set in Russia. Her editor says, you know what, Russia is too contentious right now. And this is assuming that she thought of this. Then, yeah, maybe then she has this decision to make. Does she want the novel to be published or does she want to make sure that it's about Russia and then maybe it's not published or she has to self-publish it, right? But I think that once you have a fully formed artwork, the idea that like, oh, this isn't the right week, that's a bad look, just seems like a really sort of horrible, anti-intellectual sort of doesn't even cover it. Like just, oh, that that is just, that that freaks me out. And I do not like that. What? All of this points to me two very important points. Um, one is that, you know, to use an example, the, the the great works of art about the pandemic have not yet been even created because we haven't had time to really process it. So to say that this is about the, you know, about the war in Russia and Ukraine um, is ludicrous. But what about the author who wants to maximize their own sales? Because... For me, like when you brought up the the pandemic, I was thinking about like Station Eleven, By Emily St. John Mandel, which got turned Canadian into a TV series. About, yeah, yeah, all of which happened before the pandemic, released before the pandemic. But I can imagine if it wasn't, if she was on the verge of releasing that in March 2020 about this a book about a worldwide pandemic that killed off you know a lot of people, um, and she saw COVID happening, she thought to herself. You know, with all these people dying from a pandemic, it might be a little gauche to publish this that's, now. Exactly. You that's know? her decision, not anybody else's. Right. So why does that feel different it, than Gilbert? It doesn't. I'm saying it feels different because she would choose to do that or the publisher would choose to do that as opposed to people pressuring her and saying, you shouldn't do this. And she is being ca- cowed into it and saying, no, I think I want to do it anyways. Yeah. I mean, I see this as like there are two sides of this coin. Like on the one hand, there's like what you can do in a positive sense to sell a work, Right. You have to be a complete, you know, shameless, self-promoting sellout if you actually want to sell a book. There's no other way of doing it. There's no, oh, I have my principles. I'm not going to do an awareness month because those are corny. No, you have to do whatever it is. And that's how otherwise people are not going to find your book. You can't, it's not going to be in the world. People will not be talking about it. People will not be reading it, whatever. But then the flip side to that, unavoidably, is if that's the value system in place for selling books, if that's the marketing structure in place for selling books, what happens when a book doesn't fit into an awareness month? And more to the point, what happens when a book feels like this isn't the moment? And I think the problem is, must absolutely all of artistic creation fit into a moment to be worthwhile? And my thinking is no. For me, as a writer of a different type of work, Yes, like the news cycle is more relevant for what I do. But for a fiction writer, it seems to me that they should not be beholden to these things in this way. Um, I also do want to try to move it back a little bit to the Jewish angle, though, and talk about just like the hypothetical that I keep going back to is think about World War II and the Holocaust, right? As one certainly does. I, I think about it all the time. How would I not? But the fact of the matter is like, would somebody, would it have been Big hypothetical, there was no Twitter then, I am well aware. Lenny, Lenny Riefenstahl was not a TikTok star to be canceled, right, is that what you're right, saying? exactly. Had but, she but, been, but, should we cancel her? Well, should is we, your question. Well, my question is actually whether a novel set in 19th century Germany, but written in the 20th century, whether Jews ought to have campaigned for that to be canceled. A novel no, about no. Germany... Well, that no. seems so obvious, right? No, no, I don't. I'm telling you that. I, as a, I don't think anybody is going to accuse me of sympathizing with Nazis. I am telling a, you as a Jew I mean, that I don't even believe in banning heresy. Van Bar 
accused me of anti-Semitism on Twitter. But that's neither here nor there. Um, yeah. I think that we should not be banning heresy even. Well, right? exactly. If it's I actual mean, so, yeah. heresy, put it out there and then tell people, right? Not that Judaism has heret heresy in the Christian sense of it. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Come for the girl, come for your girlfriend, stay for the absence of heresy in the Christian concept. Yes, exactly. Patchy billboard. Why On am I not, note. why am I not <laughs> writing billboards? <laughs> Are you in the market for a new watch or a special piece of jewelry? Are you looking for the perfect engagement ring to pop the question? Atelier Lou has all this and more. Eric and the team at Atelier Lou can craft a piece for you, or you can select from some of the exclusive designers that they offer. From a simple bangle to a statement necklace, Atelier Lou can make you or your loved ones sparkle. Located in the heart of Westmount in Montreal or online at atelierlou.com, visit Atelier Lou for your next watch or jewelry purchase. And when you do, make sure to use promo code BON18 for 10% off your next purchase. That's atelierlou.com. So this is a topic that never really is going to go away. Uh, we've always been looking at it. Um, the lens in which we're going to look at it from today specifically um, is because of a story that is emerging out of the Bialik School in Toronto, which is a non-denominational elementary school, but Jewish, meaning it has Jewish values and culture. There was some issue with some books in the kids' library. The librarian bought some stuff that may not have been appropriate. Parents find out. They use this as a pushback on this and other various gender based issues that had been coming up over the past year. This is something that emerged um, in May, I think, of of this year, so about a month, month and a half ago. Um, And Mm -hmm. essentially, their parents are saying, um, the term that I used was that they're liberal, but they're not woke in the sense that they're like, no, 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 we're down with progress and we're progressive individuals and we care about change and we are okay with, you know, LGBT activism and and being gay is okay and being trans is okay. All of this stuff is there, Um, but we're not that woke that we need to, you know, put it in our kids in kindergarten classes and we need to insist on these things and that that's too far right that we're liberal but we're not too liberal um and the school ultimately agreed to several changes they clarified what they uh were intending to do um regardless from what i understand it came into a public eye because of a facebook yeah so there was a facebook group and that's where i in sort of back channel ways learned about it but uh there was a tweet by john k um who we certainly know, a friend of Bonjour High, does not mean Bonjour High endorses this particular tweet, who who posted uh, on May 3rd a change.org since removed petition that had since closed. I don't know if it's removed, whatever. I don't know what petition closed means. It says from the screenshot that the petition had 394 supporters. And that's this letter um, on behalf, according to the letter, of a large and quickly growing group of concerned Bialik parents. Okay, so that's where this entered the public consciousness, Mm -hmm. as it were. Um, And that letter talks about, you know, that there are concerns about the sweeping effort by Bialik to introduce gender identity topics through the elimination of words like boys and girls, changing the four sons of the Passover Seder Haggadah to the four children, exposure to age-inappropriate books in the library, children being encouraged to choose between being the Shabbat Ima, the Shabbat Abba, Saba, or Safta, and so forth, to children starting as early as SK, that's senior kindergarten, I'm guessing. SK is senior kindergarten, yes. yes. um, This group is in full agreement that this is unacceptable and cannot be tolerated at a minimum full disclosure by the administration, parental input, consent discussion, 
motion and a majority consensus is required. So um, I, 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 I can get into some of the other, you know, stuff. Uh, and then uh, there's, there's just for context of what Bialik yeah. itself is, there's a website so, celebrate, that's celebrating Pride Month at Bialik with a big rainbow that explains um, – how they're celebrating pride. So this is, sure. so just to be clear, like about the lay of the land, which I have been educating myself on, um, like it's not, it is not an ultra orthodox, what I'm getting at in a very long winded ways is not an ultra orthodox environment yeah. where that would be unheard of, but it's also not a public school. Yeah. So talk about what that's, means too. I, I like this idea of using the Shabbat Abba and the Shabbat Yim as a lens because I think that that's a very interesting way to do it. So Friday mornings in a lot of Jewish preschools, I'm not going to say every because I don't know if that's fully the case, but it's very fairly standard practice in Jewish preschools and young with young children um, that you do like a Shabbat party or you reenact Shabbat um, and you uh, parent the teachers elect, so to speak, uh, a Shabbat Abba and a Shabbat Ima, right? The Shabbat mom and the Shabbat dad and one parent uh, uh, presumably the mom lights the candles, which in 2023 is usually like little electric votives. Um, and the Shabbat Abba says the blessing on the Kiddush, right on the grape juice, or um, and has the challah or something like you that. You mean it's not real they, wine at the nursery school or whatever? We've tried. We've advocated for this. This is not France, apparently, even though it's Quebec <laughs> in terms of laicite. I would have thought, I would have they, thought in French Canada. It they was, draw the line with le laicite le at wine. <laughs> That's called Chateau Robitussin, where we come from. <laughs> so this happens, and of course, clearly, at um, maybe there was some issue at Bialik, and uh, they were trying to. Uh, there was an elimination of the Shabbat Abba and Shabbat Ima, and the gendered roles that these parent that these uh, children would have uh, specifically. Um, they write in their follow up letter. Um, to the parents, like in response to all of this, that they are now no longer going to refer to it as Iman Abba Shabbat. They are going to refer to them as Mikhable Shabbat, right? The Shabbat welcomers or greeters. And the week- weekly appointed Mikhable Shabbat will be invited by their teacher to participate fully in leading their peers through all the components of the Shabbat celebration, right? That it's not a gendered role or it's not a gendered title and that that's the way it's going to work from now on. On the one hand, right, I can see why a school would go and say, listen, if we care about personal pronouns and if we care about the fact that kids sometimes know from very early age that they are um, you know, not the gender that they were uh, born or assigned at birth, um, but there is you know, something there that is different, that using the term Shabbat Abba and Shabbat Ima for some people might be problematic. Um, for the other children who don't have this issue, um, the question becomes, what if I do want to be a Shabbat Abba? What if I am a Shabbat Abba? What if I am, like, my kids call me Abba? I have no problem with that. Um, and the people pushing back on this, right, the, the culture war piece is to say that the elimination of the binaries does, in in the language does not eliminate the binaries in people. And sure. your job is not to um, eliminate the full spectrum. It's to say to be inclusive and mm-hmm. to say that there might be a Shabbat Abba, a Shabbat Ima, a Shabbat something else. Okay. You want to be a, just a Mikabel Shabbat? You're allowed to do that. Can I, can but, I, you know, sorry, I was going to go just ahead. give like a broader context to this in, in terms of the culture at large um, and the last 10 or so years. So what's really, really new is also having like big sort of pride celebrations at any school. So today in Canada, there are big you mean physically today. Not, well, not, no, physically today. In June of 2023. Uh, in June, sorry, yes, today as in 2023, June 2023 specifically, Pride 
is a really big deal in um, Canadian public schools, also in the culture at large, because precisely because of there's this kind of polarization and it's pushback against also this, you know, a lot of sort of right wing politics in North America is very anti LGBTQ at the moment. Uh, so there's this kind of um, polarization happening around that. So a lot of what's happening is new. That's sort of what I'm trying to get at is that a lot of what's happening in society mm-hmm. is new, not merely as we sometimes talk about on this program, new and hard for a, a traditionalist sort of person to wrap their head around, but new even to the most sort of progressive people. Does that make sense what I'm getting at? Which is different from yeah, the... Yeah, I think what you're pointing from... to, the idea that like we, we really need to measure change in terms of generations and not just in terms of weeks or months or years. Um, and that's what ha- what's happening at Bialik and Jewish day schools across North America, across the world, seems to be exactly that. Um, and yet people have a hard time with change being generational and not immediate, you know, in the sense mm-hmm. that like, if, if I need uh, pronouns to be introduced, uh, you know, right now, they need to be made sweeping changes across the board. Everybody needs to be using pronouns um, in the appropriate way. Otherwise I feel personally violated. So with pronouns, what I understand, just as an example, yeah, yeah. What right. I was going to say is in the public school, as I understand it from what I've learned about Children are not asked, they're not forced to give pronouns. They are invited to, if they want to share pronouns, do so. But like the whole thing of having to state your pronouns could be awkward for a trans kid. It could also be awkward for a kid who is not trans and they may not want to. There are all sorts of reasons somebody might not want to. So the idea is, I think, not to emphasize that for children, but a teacher might give their own pronouns or something like that. The The issue is that this has been very much covered in the mainstream Canadian media where it comes to, when it comes to either public schools or the publicly funded Catholic school system and how they're approaching pride. And also there's been some coverage of how Christian and Muslim and by the way, this is interesting. parents because are sometimes pushing back. Yes. I, I've heard about this from day school uh, heads of school that the model, and this is part of where this conflict seems to be happening, um, the model seems to be changing in schools, right? When you talk about public schools, um, you're often dealing with, as you said, um, a school that has an education board, that has a board that they have to answer to, that has a district school board, um, that where there's a lot of transparency in the decision-making process and the way in which things work. Now, private schools and Jewish day schools in particular are often moving to a consumer model, which is, this is our decisions. This is how we have set up our school in the ideal, the way that we think is the most ideal way possible. You're free to send your kid to this school or you're free not to. That's not your choice, but we're not listening to your educational input, right? Based on this, we are going to do this when it comes to LGBT issues. We're going to do this when it comes to Judaism. We're going to do this when it comes to lunch choices, right? You come to our school or don't. We don't care one way or another. And if we see that there's no enrollment, we may change our policies. But that's, you know, different than saying you have to make this change because we as the parents demand it. Um, and that this push and pull um, between private school parents who think that they're, um, that the public school system and the public school model still applies to their private school has changed. Mm-hmm. And that that seems to be a factor in this entire um, discussion as well. Okay, yeah, I wanted to ask you too, as people who have kids, if your, if your child was in uh, kindergarten and uh, they were asked, do you want to be the Shabbat Ima or the Shabbat Abba? Or if they, the teacher said, we're going to play house, who wants to be the mom, who wants to be the dad? You know, wh- how would that strike you? 
Yeah. Would it strike you any way at all? In our family, there was definitely some sensitivity there, um, given that, you know, mom works and mom is in a what has previously been perceived as a traditionally male role um, in the Jewish community, uh, definitely in the Orthodox community. And so, you know, our kids were and still are sensitive about that. Um, I think that giving kids the options and knowing that there are kids in this class where options are useful and important um, is a good thing. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean... And also not mean... every family has a mom and a dad. Some families yeah. only have one. Some For families so many have... reasons, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, in that sense, should one be sensitive? Should schools be sensitive? Should teachers be sensitive? Yes. Is there a limit to the sensitivity um, that I can expect? Yes. If you remember back in September when we interviewed uh, Yehuda Kurtzer about uh, day school um, education, and uh, the, and he said that you can't, can never expect in a private Jewish day school more than uh, 70% of uh, anything to be uh, exactly like on, you know, on target with what you're specific values are. And you're always pushing for that. And you're always also realizing that your values come into contact with other people's values in a private school environment and that you sort of have to decide what are the values that are important for you that you can teach at home that a school isn't and what are the ones that you're going to fight for. And in this situation, I think that parents are clearly pointing out these are the values that we want to fight for. Um, do I think that the way that they're doing it is is the right way? I don't know. I, I, I don't know how the school culture exists there, so I don't want to opine on that. I, I think that to answer your long-winded, in a long-winded way to answer your question, Zach, I think the parents uh, should expect sensitivity. Teachers and schools should provide sensitivity, um, but there's a limit to that, and parents and teachers should be understandable of all of that. As for the question of, well, if in my daughter's I have a kindergartner. If in her public school in a not particularly Jewish part of Toronto, they asked her if she wanted to be Shabbat um, Abba or Ima, I would be amazed. I'd be like, that is so inclusive of Jews that we're even doing a Shabbat. (laughs) But yes, I think what I have noticed as a parent, if, if this is what the question is, most children at this age are quite gender conforming. That does not mean that they are like, like, as I see it, the little girls are running around. They're not, you know, sort of like meek or something like that, but wanting to wear a tutu, all of this, this seems to be... And there's research on this. Yes, yes, there is research on this. But just to, to talk about like what I've observed, most are. What I, and I think that as a parent who, you know, of my milieu, who dutifully bought all the gender neutral onesies and, you know, rolled my eyes at all the, you know, like 18, whatever, the 18 month clothes that had a gender, then I find myself in the hyper gendered, you know, department for the four year old who will not wear the clothing that comes from the other section, because that's what she is, she wants, you know what I mean? Like, I think that most children are going to be gender conforming. What sexual orientation they have is a separate question that they very likely at four years old don't know. I I did not know my own sexual orientation at four years old because I was four years old. Um, But the point is that I think what schools should do is be inclusive and accepting of the few children who are not that. You know what I mean? So I think there doesn't need to be some kind of like weird pretending that anybody might be of any persuasion in in all ways and that you know like you don't need to pretend that that most people aren't as most people are in order to be inclusive and accepting of the of sexual and gender minorities basically Mm -hmm. is what i'm saying and specifically in the context of young children 
I would say err on the side of like playfulness and fun and do as I would do when I was teaching undergrads when I would say like if we're reading a dialogue from a textbook and like Pierre says this and Marie says that it doesn't matter who you are and what your gender is whether you read as Pierre or read as Marie it doesn't matter you know so what I would say is that but I'm coming from a secular context I do not have any investment in who is lighting Shabbat candles and who is saying the prayer. If I did, I might see it otherwise. I look at the Orthodox day school system, right, where, as I've said, I, I know that I'm not going to get everything. And I know that there have been significant problems with the culture and religious outlook and the values of my kids' schools. I know I'm, I, I, maybe I shouldn't be saying this in public, but, but I am. I'm sorry. It's true. There have been some significant issues. Um, and I've come to realize that a lot of it has to do with the fact that the majority of the parents don't necessarily think the way that I do. Uh, and I have to learn to not accept, right, the, that that's that type of orthodoxy. And I might not be exactly that type of orthodoxy. And I might think that I'm part of that group, but they don't. And if the school culture is this, then that's it. And what's happening here is that you have parents that are basically saying, we think that this is part of the school culture, but we don't know. Uh, but this has gone too far. Or that's gone too far. And just by virtue of, oh, we're a big tent school, sometimes that's not enough. And we need to further define what what Judaism means to a given school um, beyond that or what the values are of a given school so that a pri- as a private school, you can say, yes, this is something that we believe in uh, versus not. I also want to just bring in this issue of school as kind of a place in opposition sometimes to or respite from parents, which exists for public school mm-hmm. and probably doesn't for a private religious school. Because so you have in the States, a lot of discussion of like if a kid is comes out as trans at school and the parents are not informed. Then you get parents who are annoyed about this and the schools are saying, no, they're standing up for the children. Um, That to me seems like a phenomenon that could not really happen in the same way at a private religious school where the whole issue is that the school is imparting, in a sense, the values of the parents. This kind of gets both to the point of religiosity and private versus public. So that's where I wonder, I mean, just I'm baffled a little bit by the existence of publicly funded Catholic school. I understand like the, why there's this history of it, but in Ontario that there are publicly funded Catholic schools that are imparting presumably religious Catholic values, but like on behalf of the state that I find always a little curious. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, What seems to be happening here is that you have, supposing, again, that this letter is there and that there seems to be this discussion back and forth, there are two sets of parents that are um, trying to define, or a set of parents and a school that are trying to define what the in-group means in this school. And there are people that are pushing back against it. Um, And that needs to be addressed. That needs to be addressed at the school level um, with better articulation of what the values are. I think that actually Bialik did a very good job once the letter came out of articulating what their position is going to be, re-tran- uh, re-pride, re-pronouns, uh, re-all of these issues, um, and trying to assuage the majority of parents to say, this is what we genuinely believe is what the case is. I wish more schools uh, did that, because what ends up happening is schools don't like to talk about it because they're afraid of offending people on the fringes of either side, and then something happens and it blows up. And I've seen this happen time and time and time again in Jewish schools, not just around the pride issue, although I've seen it around the pride issue. There was a school in Montreal that took years.
years to, for them to finally get a pride club. Um, I know that my kid's school hasn't had an out gay student or an out LGBT student in probably the 50 years. Um, Are you serious? That, wow. Uh, that it's been in existence. That's okay. You buried lead here. Wow. Yeah. I'm just like, I don't, but that's, and you can get a sense of what the school is, right? Based mm-hmm. on that, where you have parents that are extremely homophobic. Does that concern are, you that, that the school has that sort it of does. environment? It does. And it knows, and I know that that means that we have a job as parents to, to talk to our kids and to promote values that we care about. I mean, the school is teaching values though. I would say if there haven't been any out gay students, that's a value because, Absolutely. because in like the I population, said, there are gay students, right? I, like, I'm aware. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that's, our job as parents yeah. to say just because that doesn't happen in school that tells you something about the school we yeah. are different we are mm-hmm. accepting we are this we are that we are a little more open about this and that that's okay um and i think that the parents uh, need to realize that to go to a school and to say this is absolutely unacceptable this is horrible this is bad this needs to change right away um instead of going and saying we heard about this we'd like to have conversations about it um we think that these are important issues and maybe you can articulate what the school culture is for us to understand um, is better than um, that letter, that change.org petition. Um, but I think that the resolution is there, um, but that doesn't mean that there isn't work that still has to be done across all the Jewish day schools. And on that note, um, we'd love to hear what you thought. If you're a Bialik parent, we would definitely love to hear what you thought. If you're a Bialik teacher, we'd love to hear what you thought. Um, send us an email at bonjour at the cjn.ca. Share us your thoughts, uh, share us your comments, opinions, questions, um, and uh, we'll take that into account and we'd love to hear more about it. And with that, on to our Nachas of the Week. Phoebe, what's your nachas? Um, This is going to have been the absolute most last minute nachas I have ever done, as in like, don't the tell last, them that. I'm going to get, and I'm giving a little peek behind the scenes. An article that I read yesterday um, in the New Yorker. It came out on June 9th by Lucinda Rosenfeld. It's called My Inventions and Deconstruction. And it's this big New Yorker essay about having been the about an affair she had about the affair the now middle-aged writer had with her professor when she was a student at Cornell I believe it was um but it's just this beautifully written like really really interesting article um about really so much more than what that sounds like and that is going to be what I'm gonna knock us this time around I haven't checked it out, but it does sound interesting. So yes, it's on my list now. Um, I'm going to talk about Gary Rosenblatt, who is the former editor publisher of the New York Jewish Week. Uh, he has a Substack now, and uh, he did this uh, humorous piece. This is sort of a shouts and murmurs e piece that he wrote entitled "Synagogues Adapt Major League Baseball's Changes." Right? I don't know if you're aware that there's a lot of changes to the rules of baseball to in, in an attempt to speed it up. Um, and so he went for the obvious uh, joke, which wasn't unfunny though, of uh, introducing instead of a pitch clock, uh, introducing a sermon clock, uh, eliminating handshakes between the rabbis and the congregants in an attempt to make the high holidays or just Can I mention how extremely gendered our suggested, our nachases are? Uh, Today, 100%. Yes. (laughs) I just started to laugh because I was thinking like... Here, here's the um, girl essay, and here's the boy essay. So which, check that out. So, um, but you can check out either one, regardless of your own gender. Do not assume that because I suggested one and Avi suggested the other, you have to only listen according to your own gender. We are expansive in that way here at Bonjour High. 
Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week ending June 17th, Shabbat Parashat Shalach. The show is produced and edited by Zach Kaufman. The executive producer for CJN Podcast is Michael Freeman. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We would love it if you told a friend about Bonjour Chai. It's always one of the best ways that we get new listeners. As always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at the cjn.ca and if you've listened this far and you are planning on coming to the happy hour with us next week email us at bonjour at the cjn.ca and anybody who says that they heard this will get their first drink bought by me avi feingold